Well, it's good to see you here on Memorial Day weekend. And um, before I jump into the message, you know, obviously tomorrow, Monday, being a national holiday, Memorial Day being a day that we look back, reflect, and really honor on those men and women who have given their lives in service to our country in the military, be it Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Navy, Army, Special Forces. And um, so, you know, I just want to say to each of us in this room, if you or someone in your family, uh, whether it be grandparents or cousins or uncles, have uh, lost their lives in service to our nation, we are grateful. And um, nobody wants war. Uh, but at the same time, uh, in our history, sometimes it's necessary. And, um, and so I just know for my family, we have different military personnel in my family, some have lost their lives years ago, but in my immediate family, grandparents have served, but, uh, but uh, did not uh, have to, they, they didn't die in battle, um, but yet they had still served our country. Just want to say thank you. And just for us as a people to always remember, whether it's in the military or if it's simply with your family, that, man, I think as a society, in some ways, we need to uh, upgrade our our. our our, our understanding of what's happened before us in terms of who has gone before us. If it's your grandparents or if it's the first ones that immigrated over to America, that it's like, hey, someone else paid the way. Someone else uh, sacrificed on my behalf, even before I was born, right? So whether it was someone fighting in a war or whether it was someone pioneering across West Texas in a wagon, right? Which happens to be my, my wife's family's uh, lineage, her uh, great-grandma came in a covered wagon to West Texas and set up shop. And it's like somebody had to take the risk in order for you to be where you are today. So this is the people, I just want us to never be ungrateful. Not only for what the Lord has done, which we can be very ungrateful and forgetful, but also what others have done before us uh, who love us and care about us. So just so thankful for that. And tomorrow I would encourage you, if you do know someone currently serving in the military, to reach out to them maybe tomorrow. Maybe you send them a, a video or a text message or give them a call and just say thank you. Thank you for serving and sacrificing um, on our behalf. Well, last week, Christian did a great job of kind of kicking off this series on Galatians. And he uh, took some time to kind of unpack the story of Paul, formerly known as Saul or the Apostle Paul, whatever you want to call him. And he wrote uh, more or less about a half of the New Testament and those epistles and letters, and he helped to highlight his conversion to Christ and the trials that he suffered through, and that then gave us some context for what we're about to dive into in these following weeks here in the month of June and today when it comes to the book of Galatians. He ended last week talking about Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. It says, for I am... For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, would not, uh, I would not be a servant of Christ. That verse kind of captures the theme that we are going for even throughout this series is at the end of the day, are we trying to please man or please God? Right? That's probably a good question to put on your mirror every Monday morning. Right? Like you start the week at work, you start the week at school, whatever you're doing, like, oh, 
The thing I need to remember this week is, am I here to please man or please God? Because every day of our lives, we are being faced with those options, aren't we? Like at every turn, right? Sometimes just to be nice, we just make stuff up about people because we want them to know that we're nice and that we like them and they like us, but it's not even true. You know what I'm saying? Like you'll say, your hair looks great when it's like, no, it doesn't. You know, it's like you just waked out, you got the bedhead thing going on. It doesn't look good right now. You need to fix your hair. You know, don't just, don't lie to be nice or to be liked, right? But every day we are faced with this opportunity to say, how I am doing today, what I am saying today, how I am thinking today, how I am acting today, am I doing this for the approval of man or of God? Am I doing this to please him or them, right? It's just a good question to remind us, but you know, we, we ended last week talking about that question, and I think it's going to lead us into today. Now, just a, a, just a little bit of context. I think Christian may have mentioned this, but in the 16th century, the reformers across Europe, as they were kind of reforming Christianity out of Catholicism and highlighting some different things there with Martin Luther and the gang, they had actually titled and phrased many a times that Galatians was the Magna Carta of spiritual emancipation. They said that because it really was a, a, a letter written that when you read it all the way through, what you see is that there's true freedom, true freedom found in only Jesus Christ. Not in a system, not in a government, not in an authority, not in an organization, but in Christ, there's true freedom and in Christ alone, not in a system of works or anything else. Therefore, this entire letter, you could deem it as a letter of contrast. That over and over and over, that Paul is arguing something that is existing or that's maybe being divisive and he is highlighting it and just going after it, okay? I don't know what Paul looked like. I don't know how tall or short he was. I don't know if he, you know, what his favorite fruit was. I don't know about that. But I'm guessing by what I read from him and the tone we pick up on, as he was not a man to be trifled with, right? Like, like you couldn't just kind of loft something out there and he was just gonna, like, it was, he was a truth man. Not only in his former life, just so much to the T truth, zealot Pharisee, but his conversion to Christ, how much more once he found this freedom, willing to defend it to death. I mean, so he is a man to be admired because of the fact that he was so devoted and so committed, not only to his own life being centered on Christ, but that he would give every person an opportunity he ever had to meet with or talk to or shout at, an opportunity to know, hey, this freedom's for you. He was willing to die for that message to go forth. And I'm so thankful that he really did lay his life down. And many people around the world today, in many ways, if you look at history, um, should be grateful for the life of Paul and what he was willing to sacrifice. So let's pick it up in Galatians chapter one. Now listen, today's gonna be pretty scripture heavy because I like the Bible. And so we're just gonna read a lot of it. Sound good? All right, here we go. Galatians 1, 13 through 17. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I mean, just pause a second. I persecuted the church violently and I tried to destroy it. Just remember, this is the guy now that we're like, he's a hero. 
but he's admitting he tried to literally destroy the church. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, Paul is highlighting that in his former life, he was at the top of his game, right? He was the most devoted, the most zealous in Judaism. He would have gone toe-to-toe in one of those game shows. You know, who's the best Jew? Paul probably would have won. He's still an Israelite, yet no longer lives the life seeking righteousness through the law of Moses. He is saying his former life, he did that. Everything he did was to seek God's approval by adhering and obeying and keeping the commandments of the law, 10 commandments, read through Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all the stuff. He was like, I'm going to keep everything to the T and that's how I'll be righteous. The more perfect I act, then the more righteous I'll become. And that is what Judaism taught. And that's what they, that's what the Pharisees taught. And that's what they instituted. But you see, he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Specifically, when he says revelation, what he's alluding to is on the roads of Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was blinded by a light. You know that song, blinded by the light? It's actually Paul and Jesus, okay? Blinded by the light, the, the real light, not any fake lights, the real light. And he heard the audible voice of Jesus. You know what he said? He said, Saul! Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't think he was like, hey, Saul, (laughs) Saul, why are you persecuting me? I believe this was like the thunder voice of Jesus. The one, because it it not only like blinding someone, I'm like, hey, Saul. It's like, Saul, he's he's on the road and just kind of boom and blinded. He's like, whoa. He says, why are you persecuting me? You know what he says? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Hold on. Did Paul ever throw a stone at Jesus? Did Paul pierce through him when he was on the cross? Did Paul, was he a Roman soldier? No, he wasn't. Did Paul actually physically abuse or hurt Jesus Christ? Yes or no? No. No. The answer is no. So wait a second. Why are you persecuting me? What's he talking about, right? If we don't have a record of Paul persecuting Jesus, and how is Jesus? Jesus doesn't lie, does he? Is he lying? Is he falsely accusing Paul of something he's not doing? No, what is he saying? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? You know, that word, that phrase in the Greek, persecuting, is aggressively chased down like a hunter. Literally, another way to say persecution is I'm hunting you down. We got any hunters in the room? Okay, so like I know we got rifles and stuff, but before rifles, you got a spear or a bow and arrow or dagger. You literally are chasing that thing down to the woods. And in survival mode, when you got to eat, you better make it happen. Hunting them down. Paul literally was hunting down Christians. So it'd be like him coming to those doors right here, rounding us up, 
and sending us off to prison, beating some of us, interrogating some of us. That's what Paul was doing, and he was proud of it. He actually asked for permission to do it, and they gave him permission, and he said, great. He was like the, the supreme authority for persecution. He was like top persecution director. That's literally what he was doing. But he wasn't hurting Jesus. He didn't throw stones at him. He didn't round up Jesus. But Jesus still said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hunting me down? 1 Corinthians 12, 27, which Paul also wrote later on. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting James? Why are you persecuting Alex? Why are you persecuting Will? Why are you persecuting Hunter? Why are you persecuting Jonathan? These are my, this is me. The church is me. You see, when you attack the believers, the followers of Christ, you're attacking Jesus Christ himself. Hold on. We point the finger at Paul here, about, about to get real. You know, years ago, Someone was very hurtful to my wife. I will not name who this person is. They know who they are. And God knows who they are. They're very hurtful. And when someone is hurtful towards my wife, it's like hurting me. Because when I got married, I made a covenant. For me, a covenant for life. That was before God and with her. And in that covenant, what I am told in Ephesians is that husband and wife is the greatest it is the greatest thing we have to reflect Christ in the church and that I am one with her and that when you come after her, you're coming after me. It's not like I'm gonna allow something to go at work for her unchecked. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you come after her, it's like you're coming after me and now I have to protect her and now I have to passionately defend her. I can't just be like, well, that's Ashley stepped in the mud on that one. You know what I'm saying? She steps in the mud, I go over and I get her out and I say, yeah, she stepped in the mud. What are you going to do about it? But for some reason, we're so protective of our children or of our spouse or our family, but we're not at the church. It's okay for someone to run over the church. It's okay for us to abuse it, kick it, shame it, tweet about it, blog about it, curse it. They think you have no repercussions. Let me be clear. God will judge every single action, intention, words of the heart, of the mind, of the feet, of the hands. You will be held accountable by God. Period. There is no escaping the justice of God. And so if you are a Christian or a non-Christian or former or latter or whatever your deal is, I am telling you right now. If you are persecuting, if you are coming against the church, as in the people of God, I'm not talking about an institution. I'm talking about people who follow Christ. If you're coming against them, even in their own weakness, you are just like Paul. We need to wake up, guys. You are either part of the family of God or you are not. Quit playing the game. I'm sick and tired of people playing the game of Christianity. It's not a game. Jesus, obviously, it's not a game to him. He blinded the guy who was the head guy. Literally, he could have, he could have smoked him right there. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? You're done. <laughs> what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Hey, we sold our land. We're here to get in on the good Christian game. We're all generous people, and here's our money. They're like, why'd you lie? What do you mean we lied? You lied. You said you gave everything. Uh, dead. That's exactly what happened. Read it in Acts. It's kind of freaky. What did they say? You lied to the Holy Spirit. Your life is taken. Take them out. Their husband is taken. Now she's taken. Oh, but we don't think that. We don't think there's consequences, do we? Right? Because what we're told to society and life is there's no consequences. It's all good, man. Just say you're sorry. Saying you're sorry does not cleanse you. Just so you know. A public figure, I'm sorry. Fine. But that doesn't take it away. Only Jesus Christ takes it away. Not your apology. You can't take away that. The only way to remove your sin and that judgment is Christ alone. So we're about to get into You guys ready? This is serious now. Galatians 1, 18 through 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit, to visit Cephas. I know we got double names here, right? Saul became Paul, Cephas, and I guess decided Peter was a better name, so they switched him to Peter, okay? And remained with him 15 days. So, real quick. Saul becomes Paul, comes to follow Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes off for three years in Arabia, which more or less is the region of modern-day Saudi Arabia. Anyone know what Saudi Arabia is full of? Desert. So he goes off for three years in the desert to really get his whole world transformed. And it doesn't say he's with a bunch of people. It seems like Paul went by himself and got with the Lord and got detoxed from Pharisee life for three years. That's quite the detox. That's not 40 days. It's not three months. It's three years in the desert. It's almost like he went to the most extreme place on earth to leave it all behind. Then he comes back to Peter. Spends 15 days with Peter. I'm assuming those are lots of conversations. Verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So everybody knew, they're like, wait a second, dude, the beard's a little longer. We know you. You were at our house four years ago. You raided us. What? It's a trick, you know? It's, just, it's, like, it's like an evil twin or something. It's, just, it's a trick. And it's like, no, no, no. Peter had to start vouching for him. So here's people are saying they glorified God because of me. Here's all I want to note here. This passage of scripture should give us a lot of hope. Because even the worst of the worst, the most gone, the, the person we were thinking of right now, I know it's family or friend. You're like, there's, there's no hope. I mean, there's no way I've shared the gospel. They've been just so destructive. They deserve, and it's like, yes, they've been destructive. They deserve hell. They deserve this. But for God so loved the world that he came for a guy like that, that if only they would hear and receive the gospel message, they could be saved and turned around. They could be the next Paul. Man, that's how we do missions. 
That's why it matters. You never know where that seed of the gospel is going to land and what soil and what time. You never know if you're the next person for the first person. You don't know. Oh, but just present the message and let the spirit of God do his work. Galatians chapter two, verse one through five. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Quick pause. Influential people here would be like James, Peter, John, and some others, the influential uh, Christian leaders of the time, those who had known Christ. Verse three, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek, right? So he was a Gentile, not a Jew, Titus was, but had come to faith in Christ. Verse four, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped into spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, this was massive, okay? Because if Gentiles, non-Jews, were forced to participate in Jewish traditions in order for their salvation, this would undermine the entire basis for salvation of coming through faith alone and not through works and outward appearance. This, now, he's bringing up an issue of circumcision, but it, there's so many other things that they were trying to say Hey, you have to do this because we, you know, from the Jewish faith, in order to really, to really know Christ, you have to receive him. And there's some other things you got to do. It was like the add-on, right? It was like salvation plus program. And Paul is like, whoa. So what we're about to get into is Paul waving, not the yellow flag, the red flag, right? And saying, this is a hard line. This is a non-negotiable. Christ said, this is, you are free. There's no longer Slave, nor free. Jew, nor Greek. There's not some distinctions within the kingdom of God, which is why it can be all peoples of all ages, of all races. That's why in heaven, the picture we get is that people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation is represented there in some form or fashion in heaven to the throne, worshiping God that is for all peoples, not just for the Jews. Picking it up in verse six through 10. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. I'm assuming Paul didn't really care much to be liked. He wasn't the guy who's like seeking everyone's approval all the time. You know, obviously he's like, they're influential, but who cares? God shows no partiality. Next. You know, I love it. I love just the, it's like, he doesn't, listen, if he was on Twitter, he would have like, you know, he doesn't, he's not following anybody. No, he's just posting. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to these uncircumcised, which would be the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to these circumcised, which would be the Jews. 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, these would be the influential ones, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the uncircumcised, they should go to the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now listen, to be given the right hand of fellowship is like equal to obtaining approval, affirmation from the apostles, namely Peter, James, and John. And this was significant because what it meant is that the gospel message that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles was valid. It was good. It was affirmed. It wasn't a different gospel, which means that what Paul was preaching to the Gentiles was in alignment with what James and Peter and John were preaching to the Jews. They were all preaching Christ, but different people groups, right? Different cultures, different backgrounds. That's very important because he's writing a letter to the Galatians, right? Which are a Gentile people. Like Paul's main ministry was actually to Gentiles, right? And so unless you are of Jewish descent in this room, his main preaching was to people like us, right? It was to, it was to the Romans. It was to the Greeks. It was to the people who did not know about Yahweh, who did not have those traditions. They were in pagan worship or different things and, and all sorts of other stuff they had. And Paul was ministering to them. This is so important because if his ministry is not validated in that sense in an alignment with them, then there's an automatic division within like a couple of years after Christ's death and resurrection. It's like we already got multi-denominations, right? So he is coming against this reality of, oh, there's two different kinds of classes in Christianity. There's the Jews, which would be the haves, and then the have-nots, which are like the add-ons. Do you understand me? He's trying to prevent the idea of a second-class citizenship within the kingdom of God. Because it doesn't exist. This also highlights the fact that God clearly calls and anoints people for different purposes. He's like, hey, I'm good with the fact that God calls you to them. But I'm called to them. And I just want to pause for a moment. Man, if the modern day church, if the modern day believer could get this concept, that would be so helpful. But really, just for all of us, if you could just say, man, God, what are you calling me to do? Who are you calling me to focus in on? Listen, you can love your neighbor, but it may not be your main focus. Your neighbors may all be in their 70s and 80s, and you can love them, and you're 25. But that may not be your main place of ministry. And maybe I can love them, I can help take the trash out, I can encourage them. But God may be calling you, I don't know, into people that have drug addictions or into people in the marketplace. We've got people in this church that have a real calling to minister towards business owners. So they've done that in different ways. They've strategically lined out their business and created space in their schedule to have lunches, maybe do some early morning gatherings with others that are in the business community, right? There are some in our church who no longer are here who are actually overseas. For instance, there's a couple we have in Thailand. 
and they are there ministering to the Thai people because they have a calling to minister to the Thai people. And guess what? When COVID hit in March and everything happened, and U.S. government said, hey, all Americans, this is like your window to get back. You had a mass exodus from the nation's people getting back to America. And that's fine. I don't shame them or anything. That's great. But you had a few, like these guys, you're like, we're not leaving. And we're like, what? They're like, these are our people. We're not abandoning them. This could be the greatest opportunity ever. I'm like, wow. They actually have the right calling. Because they're like, no, this is our family now. Isn't that incredible? I'm like, oh, that's you know you're called. You see, you know you're called when you're tested. If you're not tested, it's just you think you're called. You're called when you're tested, you endure. Right? When you're tested and you bail, you're not really called to them. Or you just didn't have the fortitude to push through. I don't know. But man, I love that. I love that God calls different people for different things. Even within the local context of the church, we talk about this all the time. We want you to identify the place where you serve in his mission, period. Not where your friend serves in the mission. Do what God's called you to do. What he's stirred you for. What he's put on your heart. Galatians 2, verse 11 through 17. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Oh, now it's about to get good. It's like one of those, it's one of those dramas, you know? Here we go. This is, so this is like Paul versus Peter, you know, round one, right? Here it is. It's like, wait a second. Let's just pause a second. Are you, under, are you tracking me that Paul wrote this in a letter to all the believers in Galatia? Hey, I'm name calling. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Hey, that's us. Just for a quick side note, the reason why this is a big issue for Paul right now, Antioch was a multi-ethnic, multi-Jew Gentile church. It was one of the first places we know of that actually had Jews and Gentile background believers eating together, taking communion together, worshiping together. That was not everywhere. There was like Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were separate. But Antioch, that's what happened. Okay? So, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I love that. She's like, oh my gosh, I would have wanted to be there. Just, oh, oh, what's going to happen? I mean, that's just awesome. Because he stood condemned. For before, certain men came from James. Now, James... Right? Apostle was in Jerusalem. Okay? Certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. Talking about Peter now. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This would be the people who are really adhering to the Jewish law still. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one has been justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Now let me explain. Peter and Paul were in Antioch. Peter were eating meals with Jewish and Gentile Christians. But then he stopped eating those meals with Gentile Christians because some men who came from James, who came from Jerusalem, that were Jewish Christians, came and somehow persuaded him that you should not be doing that, that that's not okay. Which then was creating a division amongst the church there in Antioch, amongst the Christians, and was then giving approval to certain class system and distinctions, which ultimately was undermining the freedom they had in Christ. You see, Paul was willing to endure the pain of conflict with Peter in order to defend the truth of the gospel. Do you think that was easy for Paul? I mean, this is Peter. I mean, this is the guy Jesus looked to and said, hey man, you're the guy. Let's go plant some churches. I mean, he goes up to that guy, but he was willing to risk everything for the sake of the gospel. Even to another man who had walked with Christ, been in the inner circle with Christ, and yet still was an error in what he was doing. I think about it for a second. That takes a lot of guts. That takes someone so motivated by the gospel that they are like, even to my own detriment, I'm willing to say what needs to be said. Guys, I just want to say there are times in our lives when we cower and back up when we don't need to because we want to be liked. <laughs> Take a lesson from Paul. If you always want to be liked, you'll never say the hard things. But the hard things need to be said because the goal for Paul was, Peter, I want to get this corrected to you and I don't want it to affect everybody else. You can't see it right now. This is going to affect not just the church in Antioch, but it's going to spread to where you are now saying now there actually are divisions. There's actually things we need to adhere to from the old law. That's going to undermine the entire thing, man. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 10, 11, the Lord reveals to Peter an open vision with this blanket coming down from heaven and different kinds of meats on it, clean, unclean, all this sort of stuff. And he shares it with him. And then immediately after that, he then goes to the house of Cornelius, right? Who was a pagan, who's a Gentile and ministered to him. And salvation comes to the house of Cornelius and people are baptized and saved. And they shared meals together. You see, the Jews had certain dietary restrictions. We wouldn't allow them to eat certain meats or certain foods and certain days and all that kind of stuff. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to bring that into this, then now you're saying now there's all these extra traditions we're going to add on to this freedom in Christ that we found. But that's not what Christ said. And what's interesting about this is he says, Paul says, um, he says, even Barnabas has been led astray. Even Barnabas. Barnabas was the first pastor in Antioch. Barnabas was the partner with Paul. He's like, you even persuaded one of my closest friends. The guy who founded this, who pastored this church. You persuaded him. Do you not see the damaging impact of that decision? They'll have a ripple effect. Guys, I want you to hear me. 
They're decisions we make that at the time, we don't see it projected out. Oh, but the damage is coming. Do you understand me? We tend to make decisions in the moment based off our nearsighted or kind of not long throw perspective. And then that has a consequence. Do you understand? You can't, it's like, oh, if I could, if I could help our society understand something, um, there are consequences for our actions. I feel like that needs to be like a, I don't know, a, a, a like degree or something at a university. Did, did you know that when you say things, there's cause and effect? Hello? Uh, you know, when, when you do things, it's like, like, I love hearing this phrase right now. I don't love it. I actually hate it. But people say, um, I, I, I didn't mean to. I mean, I'm sure Peter's like, I didn't mean to cause this division. Paul's like, I know, but you did. Bro, it's like, you did cause division. Can you see? And he's like, oh. Okay, so like, it's not like Peter had this, I'm gonna cause division in the church. Are you kidding me? This guy sacrificed his life too. He didn't see it. But sometimes we cannot see clearly. Do you understand me? Which is why if you're not in community, you can't see clearly. Wow, my job's terrible. Have you talked to anybody about it? No, I know it's terrible. You know, oh man, my marriage. Have you talked to anyone? No, but I just, I mean, I'm just have this feeling about it. Wow, get rid of that. Quit trusting your feelings. They're very sneaky and usually aren't accurate. Just being honest. Right? That's why the gospel is not based on feelings. It's based on truth. I don't care if you like the way Christ died or not. That's what it is. I don't care if you, if you are on board with having to humble yourself, confess your sins to him as Lord and Savior and follow him. That's the path. You can't devise your own form of Christianity that makes you feel comfortable. It is a narrow life that is sacrificial, that is costly, and could cost your life like it did Paul and Peter. Both of them ended up getting killed over it. It could cost you that. That is what this is. It is life and death. About to wrap it up here. I want us to be encouraged, guys, by the stand Paul made. It's a courageous stand. We live in a day where we'll need to be others. You can't just read Galatians and say, man, good job, Paul. Glad that's over. Right? Because we haven't had any things to stand for the last year, right? There's no, there's no, everything's good. We live in utopia America, right? <laughs> um, there, there's those that have courage and those that are cowards. I want to be on the courageous side. Now, I don't know until I'm tested. But you know how you get better to be on the courageous end, stronger percentage? By being prepared now. Prepare your hearts. You know this. Confess your sins. You're in community. You're, you're, you're pushing yourself. How do you prepare for a marathon? You actually have to run a lot of miles before you run that race. You just think you're going to show up to marathon and run it? That ain't possible. I don't think it's really possible. I mean, there might be a couple of people on planet Earth that can do that. Like, never run, just run a marathon. I don't think you can do it. Your body will literally break down. You won't be able to keep going. If you do not prepare, and when that race comes, you won't be able to make it to the end. I want to be found faithful to the end. 
And I want to have courage when my hour comes. No matter what it is. Whether it's extreme or less extreme. I want us to be faithful as a people. The last verse we'll read and then the bank can come on up. Make way up here, guys. Verse 18 to 21. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Man, I love how Paul ends this kind of statement, this whole argument. I've been crucified with Christ, which means everybody, church in Galatia, church here at Antioch, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is really good news. You see, Paul does no longer live underneath the burden of the Mosaic law. He no longer lives under the burden of trying to prove himself to be righteous every single day. He is righteous because, blood, because the blood of Christ makes him righteous. You become righteous in that exchange, that mysterious, beautiful exchange. He atones for our sins. We're then justified, and therefore in Christ, we are washed covered in his family. And he says, now you're righteous. So that when our day comes at the end of days and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he's like, I know you. 1994, right? I know you. 2017, right? I know you. You confessed then. You were cleansed then. And you lived that life. I know you. He's not going to say, all right, let's see here. Uh, Archangel, scales, please. All right, 94 to 98, pretty good. That's pretty good there. That was youth group. Okay, whoa, college. All right, look out. Little level here. Yikes, early adulthood. Ooh. We turned it back around to kids. Oh, yeah, better get serious about faith. You got kids now watching. 30, 32, oh, good. yeah, there we go. Whoa, empty nest around. Got a little scourge there. Kids left, had a little crisis, okay. Walked away from the church. No, no, no. We need you. We need that. Okay, now you're faithful. Uh, some of us think that, though. There ain't no scales. No need for scales. There's a need to submit to Jesus. There's a need to recognize you're free. The last thing I'm going to end with is, um, you know, I often will say... Um, when things shift from have to to get to, everything changes. Your perspective shifts. You know, do I have to go to work or do I get to go to work? Do I have to coach my kids' team or do I get to coach my kids' team? Do I have to vote or do I get to vote? Do I have to serve in the church or do I get to serve in the church? Do I have to buy Christmas presents or do I get to buy Christmas presents? You see, um, the gospel shifts from have to to get to. You know why I think Paul was so immensely devoted and courageous? Because he had experienced the freedom. I would even argue his amount of zeal and commitment in his former life 
as a radical Pharisee persecuting the church was actually outweighed by his radical following of Jesus. Because, you know, it's like Jesus says, everything in the New Testament, New Covenant, is what we were doing before, we go up a notch. Right? It's, it's here. It's next level. There's actually no limits here. Here you just obey that law. Here it's your entire life is free to run after me. You see, he experienced the immense freedom of God and took that three-year hiatus in the Arabian desert and got his whole world and paradigm shifted and heart renewed and realized, no way, this is the only person I'm living for. This is the only cause I'm gonna fight, this one. And I ain't letting go. Throw your stones. Later on, you know, another time, Paul writes, um, I've been beaten, I've took on 39 lashes at least three or four times. I've been stoned, I've been left for dead, I've been shipwrecked, I've been out to sea. Uh, I mean, Christian listed them off, you're just like, what? That all happened to a human being? And they survived? He took it harder than anybody else I know. But he never wavered. So church, what's my encouragement this morning? This is pretty heavy stuff. What's my encouragement? Is that when you find your true freedom in Christ, you can endure anything. Nothing is impossible. Fear will not win the day. Courage will. Hope will. So I want to stand this morning. Just want us to end here. Just we're not gonna have a ministry team come up this morning. I just want everyone to respond to this together collectively. But I think underneath the, the premise of the gospel and this freedom in Christ, I just want us to ask the question, Lord, where, where are the places in my life where I have a mindset of I have to versus I get to? Because some of those have tos may be tied back to an old tradition or a law or something you added on, Christianity plus. Versus the get to is, man, I, I get to encourage people. I get to speak the truth. I get to honor. I get to serve. I get to X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. But that's, I think that's God's heart. Because when you say I get to, that means you're walking in freedom. Not under the law. I think if Paul was here today, he would say something similar. He wants to be free, unrestricted, unhindered, to run after Christ, to love your neighbor well, create no classes, but in Christ, we're together as a family. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us highlight and ask God, every one of us, Lord, where are the places where we are just a bit off or maybe way off, I don't know, because we want to be free. We don't wanna live underneath the law. We don't wanna incorporate some sort of tradition that's not even from you or pretend that there's some sort of pleasing man, pleasing God game. We're always back and forth with God. We don't want that. We want our hearts pure. We want our hearts devoted to you. We, wanna, we don't want to add things on God. Take it off us. I pray, Lord, by the mercy of God, take those extra weights off us. Take the things that are, that, that are hindering us, that are, uh, that are just weighing us down. They're even maybe in trying to take us back into slavery of an old way, Lord. We just pray, break it off this morning. Give us your mercy. Extend your grace. Open up our eyes to see the freedom we already have. 
and that we get to please you, not man. Lord, give us the courage to say what needs to be said in all love, but to be courageous and bold. And Lord, rid us of anything that doesn't smell of Christ, we pray. Let us be a people that smell like Christ, have the beautiful fragrance of Christ emanating off our lives. That's our desire. We want to be those that look like you, sound like you, act like you. You are our example and our Savior. We thank you, Lord. Do it, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name.